Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. Eric Casavant is in from the bustling metropolis of Milton. Hello, Eric. Hey, Nick. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I'm glad that we are able to get a full night's sleep last night. That's a huge benefit. That's probably the hugest benefit. Yep. So today what we want to talk about is what it's like to have a partner on the ambulance, what a good partner looks like. Um, and we also want to tell just some quick, quick stories without getting sucked into the whole war story mentality of just some of our best days on the ambulance, why we do it, kind of the most rewarding experiences that we've had. Does that sound good, Eric? Sounds great. So let's get to it um, right off the bat. So what do you think of when you think of a good partner? Well, I guess a little bit of background, like Nick and I are currently partners on the ambulance. So that's, that's helpful. Um, a good partner to me is somebody that you can work with really seamlessly. Like there are defined roles and responsibilities on the ambulance. Like we all know that. Um, but in a good partnership, you really can't tell who's supposed to be running the show. It should really be a, a seamless effort. You just kind of work well together. Like nobody needs to boss the other person around. Everybody kind of knows the agenda, what to do, and it should be seamless. Like if, if somebody really needs some significant patient care, we, we shouldn't be spending time de- deciding on who's going to do what or how the roles and responsibilities are going to go. Like it should just be a seamless effort. We know the uh, end goal, so we're just trying to get there as easily as we can. It should be a good partnership. And you have some experience other than where we work now, right? You come from kind of some roots and some more volunteer sides. Yeah. So my background, um, I've been in the volunteer fire service since I was just a young duffer, like age 15, 16. I did some cadet stuff. And then uh, I initially went to the University of Vermont for an engineering degree. I decided that really wasn't for me. So I actually ended up at Vermont Tech in the fire science program. Part of the program there is that it's now a requirement that you get your EMT certification. So at that point, it was just kind of checking the box. It was something I I was going to need to do to graduate. So it's like, okay. Um, Throughout the course, I found myself a little bit more interested in it. I started volunteering back home with Hardwick Rescue, um, began a little bit of some some action there, um, and then slowly kind of evolved that more towards the career fire service when I realized that was really what I was interested in. So I got my degree from Vermont Tech, um, spent some time volunteering prior to working in Burlington, and then got hired in 2017. So... Yeah, I think the way I've experienced EMS has been traditionally either you have assigned crew or assigned partners and you kind of show up and you have the same crew every day or some places that I've worked, you have rotating crews. Have you worked in either one of those? Yeah. So in Hardwick, it was rotating crews. Um, People had their certain roles and responsibilities. It was a minimum of three. Um, The basic requirement would be a CPR certified driver, and that was primarily patient moving, lifting, and then they drove the ambulance. And then we would have some basics and some advanced EMTs. Um, we tried to run an advanced EMT at a minimum, so there would be the, in theory, quote, crew chief, and then an EMT basic to be a, the second person in the back. Um, rarely MS, we didn't have any first response companies very typically, so uh, your ambulance crew was really kind of it. Um, in Burlington, obviously, we have more of a partnership where we work the same shift every third day. You're assigned with somebody else typically on the ambulance that you work with really consistently, so that's a little bit of a difference, whereas back home it was... Typically, the certain people would do the certain weekends or nights or whatever, but any random day you could be with somebody that you never really worked with before. So, Yeah, and that's kind of a challenge. I think of kind of what we do in Burlington, kind of similar to what you'd see on the show, like emergency, where you kind of show up to work, you have the same partner, you kind of know each other really well, and there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, I look at those rotating crews. I was part of those for a long time. And that's more of like a pickup basketball game. You know, one day you might have somebody that's great at three pointers and is a star player and you might be smoking all the other teams. And there might be another day where you got someone that can't even catch a ball, you know, and you got to just be prepared for whatever is going to go on and, and try to work the best you can with it. And the hard 
hard part with that is like we were just talking about a minute ago, like you really don't get the opportunity to feel somebody out and see how they're going to react in these situations until you're actually in the situations, which can go really bad or it can go really good. And it kind of depends on how you and the other person can kind of adapt and overcome that. Because once you get working with somebody, you know how they're going to deal with certain things, it makes it a lot more smooth. Whereas sometimes somebody might drop the ball and you got to pick it up or you might work really well together and you kind of got to figure it out as you go. Yeah, for sure. I think um, one of the situations that comes to mind when we talk about that is I was assigned with an individual on the ambulance once at a previous department, and we went to a um, report of a police officer shot, and the person had a family member that was a police officer and, like, was uncontrollably sobbing the entire way to the call, like, to the point where, like, I had to, like, reach over and, like, try to hold on to the wheel and, like, start to think about, like, can we even go to this call and perform on this? And it got to the point where... Um, luckily it was a fire-based CMS service and we just put that person on the engine and swapped them out for somebody else to drive me to the hospital. But things like that are stuff where if you have, uh, the same partner every day, you can kind of predict some of those things or where those triggers are and you can kind of be prepared and rotate people around and deal with it. Whereas that rotating crew mentality, one of the disadvantages is that stuff might surprise you if you don't know them that well. Right. And, and we can't all be robots, right? Certain things are going to get at certain people. That's an inevitable kind of thing. So it, it's a matter of recognizing that ahead of time, being aware that this might be a trigger point and you might have to take the lead a little bit more than than relying on this person. And that's okay. Like like I said before, like we can interchange those roles as we need to do. And so if I know that somebody else isn't going to do so great on scene, I'm going to just step up and I'm going to kind of take charge of that and make it happen. Um, you really don't want to put somebody in that spot because like I said, everybody's human here. We want to be robots and put it all aside. But once in a while, something will get at somebody that's really kind of a, a difficult obstacle they're going to have to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with you and I and my last partner and the partner before that, we all kind of had this, um, you know, spoken rule of having like a an emergency kill switch just in case we need to swap out. You know, you go to a call or something, you have a terrible day, your car breaks down, it's freezing cold, you bark your knuckles on the way in, your key card doesn't work, you spill your coffee on your lap, like one thing after another. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this patient that's yelling at you or being mean to you or spitting on you or something like that. And you're kind of at the end of your rope. You should feel comfortable with your partner just looking at it being like, you know what, like pineapple or like whatever your safe word is, like we got to, we got to do something. And that should be just between you two as humans, it's like, I got you. Like, I'll take care of it. Right. And that's seamless. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. So as long as you're able to recognize that about the other person you're working with and being like, okay, so it's time for me to sub in. They can take a step back. I got it. And that's totally okay. Um, and again, that's something we can talk about ahead of time. Like it, it's pretty seamless once it happens. But if, if we don't know that and you're having a bad day and walk in and like you kick a puppy on the, on the walk in or something like that. And I don't recognize that you're maybe just off. Like that's on me as well. Like I should be able to step up and play that role and just be receptive to that like okay so it's, it's not a great day for him that's okay like I'm having a fine day nothing bad happened to me on the way in so we're good like I can make that happen and and the last person that should ever need to recognize that is the person that we're trying to help here right if, if we're at such a point that we're having a bad day enough to the patient for the patient to notice right like that's going to be a problem and we never want it to get to that point so that seamless transition like okay you're having a day that's fine like I'm gonna step in not a big deal and we'll make it happen like that should just be something that you can do really easily. And I always look at it, at the partner as somebody that kind of has a little bit more of a detached perspective when it comes to, you know, the person that's experiencing the tough day. So I look at it as a sports analogy. If you have LeBron James running down the court, who's, uh, you know, arguably a pretty decent basketball player, and all of a sudden he starts missing shots and then he starts airballing and he starts turning the ball over and he starts missing passes. 
he may be so focused on the frustration of that stuff not going his way that he may not be able to recognize that maybe he needs a second to reset. And sometimes it takes a teammate or a coach or somebody else um, who's not who's not LeBron James to look at him and be like, hey, man, like grab a Gatorade, grab a towel, we'll get you swapped out in a couple minutes, we'll get you right back in. And sometimes that's all you need is just that little reset to kind of get back to where you were. Right, and like you said, in the moment, you might not notice that. So if I'm like, hey, Nick, like I got it. And then after the call, we talk and I'm like, hey, I just noticed you're off your game a little bit. And you're like, oh man, like, yeah, I, I totally was out of it for a second there. I didn't recognize that. Like, thanks for uh, pulling me aside. I appreciate it a lot. Like things are going to get better from here on out. I'll do a better job. I recognize that. But just in the moment, it can get tough, right? This can be an overwhelming gig. We, we do a lot of work sometimes. And the nice thing about having a partner is a partner is your buddy and they're all lateral. So like if we go on a call and, you know, I need a little bit of help or whatever is going on. I mean, that's not a reflection poorly on me at all. It's not like I'm going to the fire chief or the rescue chief or the town manager and being like, listen, you know, I, I had trouble with some med math. Like, you know, this needs to happen. Cause then that, that just becomes really complicated for everybody. Sometimes your partner is all you need to just kind of keep you on track and help you out. And they should be your go-to person and right-hand man or right-hand woman. And that's kind of who I rely on the most. I know with all of my ambulance partners that I've had over the last few years, when something is going bad in the ambulance, I want my assigned partner in the back with me. I'll just take an engine guy as a driver or a PD guy as a driver because I know my partner and I know what they know my expectations. I know their expectations. I know their limitations, their strengths, you know, and that stuff comes into play a lot when they're sick. Absolutely. And, and we all need to be competent in our skills, but there's inevitably going to be things that either you like better and therefore you put a little more brain power into or you're just naturally kind of better at or good at. Um, and hopefully you can find that balance between yourself and your partner where, OK, like like I know you're amazing at this one thing and I may be not so good at it. So I'm just going to delegate that to you when it's my turn to do it. And then vice versa, like you should be able to rely on me for things that maybe aren't your strength or you can just delegate in my direction. Um, and again, like we should be able to balance that really easily between ourselves. And if somebody else has to intervene and be like, OK, like, hey, like I noticed you weren't so good on that, like. We don't ever need that to happen, right? We can recognize that within ourselves and we should be able to recognize that and have a seamless moment in the back where it just happens, right? The the person gets better, the mission gets accomplished and, and we go on to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember I worked with one individual that for whatever reason really, really didn't like hand injuries, like any sort of like degloving or, you know, skin tears or avulsions, like they just really, really rubbed down the wrong way. And I remember even if that person was in charge, if we went to a call and they're like, oh yeah, I was cutting the um, sweet bell pepper and all of a sudden, here we go. It looks like that. Like I'd be like, hey, let me, I'm Nick. I'm going to help you out here. Uh, oh, okay. Let me take a look at that. Uh, oh, you know, whoever, can you go grab the stretcher for me? You know, and I think being tuned in on that and knowing where your partner's kind of sensitivities are, where the strengths and weaknesses are, really make the best well-rounded team. And like you just said, like you immediately went in and you took over that role, like without having the conversation where somebody has to admit like, okay, so maybe I'm not so good in this spot, but you've had that moment of it ahead of time. Like you recognize that and you're like, all right, I'm just going to step in without ever having to have the conversation. We'll talk about it later if we need to. But right now, the moment we're going to, we're going to get the job done. We're going to accomplish the goal. We're going to make it the best we can for this person. So just the self-recognition and that kind of that relationship to have that formed ahead of time, where you already know that without the conversation, that that's huge in the partnership. Yep. 
And I think the other way to look at that too, is if that person's like, you know what? I got it. Like, I really feel okay right now. Like then I totally don't overstep, you know, I just kind of touch base and offer to take it over and kind of step in that role. And if they're like, no, no, I got it. Don't worry about it. You know, even just that gesture, I think goes a long way with them. And they really appreciate that you pick up on the fact that that's something that they don't like and you're there to help them with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's always reassuring to know that they got your back. And and like you said, it doesn't mean you always have to step up, but just provide the offer and be like, all right, so if you need a moment, I'm here. If you're good, you're good. No problem. But I just want you to know, like, I got your back, whatever you need. Like for me, I really don't like dead bodies. I just don't like that. I don't like being in the room alone with them. I don't, I don't know what it is. You know, I, maybe I watch too many TV shows with them waking up on the table and stuff, but it just freaks me out. And all my crews know that. And, you know, they'll kind of, they'll be available for me. I'll go in, I'll do my thing. You know, there's times where I got to be in there by myself, but, you know, especially when it's not a medical, you know, after the cardiac arrest is done or if it's a, you know, dead on arrival or an untimely or something, I just really, really don't like being alone with them. And I think most people that work with me know that right and and in, and in all honesty that's not your role anymore right like you said that's become a crime scene and i can think of a great example this one guy we work with he's former law enforcement and and he was almost in his element like after you hit that transition point like he's a great paramedic and then after that point he would be like all right so this is fascinating to me and he'd be showing people like different things about the person the body and why this happened and why that happened and how it's affected it and and that's not going to be you and that's okay right but that was like one of his things so it's just the differences in people's personalities their life experiences what they might have done before this what they might do after this right and that was something that he seemed to be really into so yeah i'm a, out on that role I'm, for i'll be outside I'll yeah. be, i'm not gonna be in there yeah, you just that. hang out outside yep. we'll catch you yep. goodbye so anyway, one of the things I want to touch on in this episode is something that's kind of been on my radar. I always wanted to put this in, but I haven't quite found the right moment. But I think between you and I, we have some decent stories. And I just wanted to touch base, especially during the holiday season with everything that's been going on in the world. There are some calls that tend to stand out in your mind that are going to bug you, you know, just negative calls and negative impacts. And everybody knows those. But on the other side, you're also going to have some calls that are really rewarding that you're going to hang on to that provide a lot of job satisfaction and sense of purpose. And for me, there's two that have kind of been on a good repeat in my head over the last few years. And it, it really makes me feel good about my job and it, it helps me go into work. And sometimes if I'm feeling a little down or I'm dealing with something, uh, just thinking about these incidents helps me kind of recenter myself and kind of understand that there are things that I can contribute to the people around me and I can do good medicine and I can take good care of people. And I thought I would just share um, two of those stories with you. And I hope that Eric can share a story or two of his, you know, as well. Cool. So one of the things that the first one that I want to go over is just, just an example of uh kind of all those things that we do in EMS class, like we go over them, we go over them and, you know, you guys are drinking coffee and you're sitting there and you're tired and it's 8.30 in the morning, you know, on the lab day and it's just exhausting and we're running you through these scenarios. And I remember going through, when I went through the UVM program, you know, you'd be there at class, it'd be like 8.30 in the morning, half the kids would be hung over and you kind of just go through the motions and you go through the motions and you go through the motions. And I don't really think a lot about it. You get your EMS license and then, you don't even realize it, but all that stuff is designed to condition you to kind of think a certain way and pick up on certain things. And you hear all of these phrases and terminology and examples of stuff over and over and over again in EMS. And it kind of becomes like subliminally written in your in your brain. And right. you don't even really think about it. It becomes that classical conditioning. And you, like you said, you don't even realize it's happening. And then in the moment someday, it'll just pop in your head and you'll be like, like how, I don't know how I know this, but I know this, right? Like, I'm good with this. Let's make it happen. 
right? Like for an example, you know, you might have, uh, you know, you might listen to lung sounds in your EMT course and they're like, okay, if you hear, you know, diminished or absent lung sounds on one side, that's a pneumothorax. Like, and if it presses on the heart, you're going to have a drop in blood pressure because it's a tension pneumothorax. And you might hear that over and over and over. You might read a lecture series on that. You might watch a video. You might hear your instructor talk about it. You might have a trauma scenario where you do that. And then sooner or later, someday down the road, you're going to go to some car accident and you're going to put the stethoscope on because that's what you always do. And all the lung sounds are always fine. And all of a sudden there's not going to be a lung sound there and they're going to have low blood pressure and your brain just going to be like, wait a minute, we learned this. Like, this is what it is. And then you're going to be like, this is a high priority patient. And you're going to kick right into that NREMT sheet. And you won't even know that that stuff's happening until you're like halfway to the hospital. Then you're like, you know what, man, maybe that uh, lab instructor actually knew something about something. It is funny. I can think of a perfect example of that too for myself personally. Like uh, we teach all the time, like this flail chest, like as an EMT, it's a it's a bulky dressing, right? Stabilize as much as you can with a bulky dressing. And then somebody like during, when I was in an instructor role, they challenged me, not really challenged me on it, but they were kind of just like, okay, how do I do that and why? And I'm like, I had a moment where I'm like, oh my God, like, wait a second. I, I don't even know anything about this. It's just programmed in my brain. That's what happens, right? Like, I don't even know if I could do it, but it was really interesting for me. And of course I did some more homework, did some research, got back to him with the appropriate answer and everything. And it made me better. Right. And that was when I was, you know, still very new and everything. So it just like you said, it just popped into my brain. It's like, well, that's very simple. Like you use a bulky dress and I'm like, okay, but how do I do that? And you're like, wait a second, I, I, don't, I don't even know if I can give you an example or a demonstration. Like, I just know that's what you do, right? And it's just that conditioning. Yeah, so what, one of the scenarios I kind of remember in my head was um, I did some time on Firebase EMS service before I came to Burlington too. And I remember we went to a house fire, just a classic house fire. It was a, kind of a smaller engine company that was on duty that night. We went out there, the house was fully involved except for like one corner of the house and the window was broken out. And as we were stretching the lines and getting towards addressing the fire problem, as I was walking through the yard, I noticed that there was an older guy like just in boxers and a t-shirt and he was coughing really hard. And I just said something simple like, oh, are you all right? And when he said like, yeah, I'm okay, he sounded kind of hoarse. And so I I like stopped for a second. I looked over and his feet were a little bloody, you know, and he, he wasn't really wearing appropriate clothing for the time of year it was. And so I remember just like, just ask him, you know, do we, you know, what's going on? Are, like, are you hurt? And he was like, oh, well, luckily I got out. And then I finally put these pieces together. Sometimes when everything's going on, it takes a second for all the pieces to come together. And I was like, what, you know, were you in that house? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. I was on the second floor. I had to jump out of the window because I couldn't get down the stairs. I said, are you having any trouble breathing? He said, well, my throat hurts, but I feel fine. And I remember, you know, like that EMT stuff kicking. I was like, wait a minute. And I took my flashlight off of my fire call. I said, can you just open your mouth for a second? He opened his mouth. He had all this like black, like mucus and he was spitting it all out in his nose and his mouth and his throat, like all the way back as far as I could see, even when he opened his mouth wide, like way past, you know, anything, any of the structures inside of his mouth, it's just black all the way down. You know, and he's like, yeah, I really, you know, my chest really hurts and my throat hurts, but I feel like I'm okay. I just feel lucky to be alive. And I just remember all that stuff that my EMT instructors were saying to me of like, if you ever see soot in this, you know, in the nose, in the nares, in the mouth, like, you know, you got to consider airway burns, all this other stuff, the superheated gases. Right. And, and it's not like you spent an hour and a half no. studying that one line in your book for no. whatever reason, you'd heard it enough. So it popped right in your brain and you're like, 
whoa, like this is that moment. Like here it is. Yeah. And for all the times that you went to like a potential smoke inhalation or a fire and you're like, okay, open your mouth. And their mouth was pink and clear and there was nothing. This one time, you know, I just, I shine my light in there. I'm like, wait a minute, that looks dark. Wait a minute. Is that black? That's soot, you know? And then uh, luckily that particular fire department, we used to bring an ambulance and an engine to the call. And I remember thinking to myself, like we have an ambulance and this guy has difficulty, you know, a little bit of difficulty breathing and he's got a raspy voice and I think he might've inhaled smoke. And I went up to the fire chief, which was kind of daunting for me because I was still pretty young on the job. And he was like the fire chief on a fire. And I remember just saying like, Hey chief, like this guy was on the second floor. He's got injuries to his feet and I think he has airway burns. He's got soot in his mouth. Like I need a driver and I need to go to the hospital right now, you know, because at that point we didn't have anyone that could intubate and we had restrictions in our district that didn't allow for any sort of protection of the airway at that particular moment and stuff. Um, and so he, he just gave me some I think some fire guy from like Essex or somewhere. I don't even remember where I was from. Just some guy be like, Hey, have you ever driven an ambulance? Yep. Okay. Drive this guy to the hospital. And I remember telling him like, get me to the hospital as, you know, as quick and as safely as possible. And as we got this guy loaded up, you know, he's, he starts having difficulty breathing. I start hearing wheezing. We get on the interstate, you know, the guy driving me has kind of the pedal to the metal or whatever. We're going, we're zooming pretty good. And I called for a paramedic intercept from one of the nearby towns. And they said it was going to take a while to get him out of the, out of the quarters or whatever. And I just said, you know, if, if they're not, if I don't see any red lights coming as we go over that exit, we're just going to keep going because I know we're only a few minutes away from the hospital. You know, so we get him going. I put him on a non-rebreather. He starts to get lethargic. By the time we're getting off the interstate, you know, in Burlington, the guy is like, almost completely unresponsive. He's, he's like accepted a nasal airway. He's like, he's just like, I'm suctioning this stuff out of his mouth. Like you can hear this audible wheezing. He's not doing good at all. And I wheeled him into the ER. He started desatting. They intubated him immediately. He ended up going to the ICU and the doctor was just like, Hey man, you know, we're, we'll see what happens. He's got some pretty significant airway swelling. He's, he's really sick. You know, we'll, we'll see what we can do here. And I kind of just cleaned the stretcher and was in my mind, I was like, oh man, that's just a bad medical. Well, good right. luck to you. And like at the moment, you probably didn't recognize like, okay, that was a pretty big deal. That was super heads up. And something ticked in the back of your brain that was like, all right, I need to get this guy to the hospital right now. Like, yes, we all want to do the fire thing. I totally get that. But like the life safety aspect is more important right now. And and whatever it was, that condition in your brain clicked and you made a huge difference, right? You watched that guy deteriorate over the course of what, 20 minutes maybe from the time you first talked to him to the being in the ER. And if you hadn't been heads up at that moment, you come to check on him 20 minutes later, he'd have been unconscious gasping on the ground, right? Like, yeah. so you made a huge difference. And at the time you were probably like, not a big deal. I'm doing my job. But looking back, like you said, you get feel good feelings from that. You made a, you made a difference in that guy's life. He's probably alive because of what you did. So that's huge. And it's tough too, because, you know, when you, when you're, especially if you're sleepy and you're doing fire stuff and you don't get dispatched for that particular complaint, like when calls change, sometimes it's hard for me to reset a little bit. And I remember looking in his mouth and just being like, oh man, they're sitting there. Like he probably should go to the hospital. Like that was kind of what's on my mind. It wasn't anything urgent. And then as we were driving, just the look in his eyes, like I feel like sometimes I have a lot of empathy, you know, when I'm, when I'm with somebody, I take, if they're like, Oh, I feel like I'm going to die or, Oh, I feel like I can't breathe. Or if they get that like 10,000 yard stare, that stuff means more to me than any blood pressure reading could ever right, mean absolutely. in that Treat moment. the patient in that scenario, right? They know there's an instinct. They know, you know, and it just, it just kind of like watching him deteriorate. I don't think if you had asked me, you know, like if you had pulled me aside when I saw this sit in his airway and been like, Hey, what is he going to be like in 15, 20 minutes? I don't think I would have been able to accurately describe it. 
you know, and I, I never really gave it another thought. And then like six months later, the doorbell rang at the firehouse and I happened to be working and this guy shows up with the fruit basket and I didn't even recognize him. And he's like, Hey, I just want to let you guys know, you know, my house burned down, but it's getting rebuilt. And, you know, uh, I was in the ICU for like two months and I just wanted to let you know, you know, whoever took me into the hospital said, uh, you know, the doctor said that, if I had not gotten there exactly that moment, you know, if I had gotten there later, they don't think they would have been able to resuscitate me because I had such severe, you know, lower airway burns like down in my alveoli and like really severe searing of the tissue. Um, and uh, it just it just struck me. I was like, man, you know, that was that's just like a soot thing that you read in a book and someone tells you. And uh, that particular scenario, I didn't do anything advance. I didn't do any medicine. I didn't do anything complicated. All I did was put that guy in a non-rebreather, bring him to the hospital and then bag a little bit on the way through the ED. But other than that, there was, there was no, I didn't do a 12 lead. I didn't like interpret this thing. I didn't do like some crazy IV injection with some crazy fluid. Like it was just, man, like something's wrong with his airway. Oh man, did he inhale like these superheated gases and soot? And then we just drove to the hospital. That's all we did. Right. And and whatever your level was at the time, like you recognize, okay, like there's an airway thing. Like you don't get you don't ever get past that. That's fine. Right. That, that's priority number one here. And it and turned out to be priority number one for this guy. Like that would have killed him. There's no way around it. Yeah, I definitely I think I was in A and when we were driving and he started to deteriorate, I specifically remember like looking pretty much between the top of his head and his like clavicle. And just like in my head, I was like, Oh no, Oh no, Oh no, right. Oh no. How long ago do you think this was? I mean, you've been in Burlington five years. Ooh. Um, I want to say it was like 2014. Yeah. So, so six years, I guess. So, and you still remember it like it was yesterday. So obviously yeah. it made an impact, right? That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a feel good call for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And a go-go call. And a go-go call. It that's a great a, example of a go-go call. That's a go-go right? call. Yeah. Nick and I are not huge proponents of getting the person to the hospital like yesterday, but there's a few calls where we're like, okay, this, this is a go-go call, right? We got to go. Yep. And that's that's a great example. Yep, absolutely. Did you have any uh scenarios in your head that yeah, you kinda I, hang on I to? Have a, I have a cool scenario. Like uh, I guess it was a couple years ago now. So I was with my last partner. Um he was a relatively new AEMT and so was I. Um we'd both been out of A class for a couple of months, whatever. We were working together, things were good. And we get called into the north end, which was actually our second do off that ambulance. I was downtown at the time. For, I think it was just a guy, General Malaise. Like he'd pulled off the side of the road. He wasn't feeling great. We're like, okay, whatever. So we get there. Fire company gets there just ahead of us, whatever. They start checking out the guy. And I remember stepping out of the ambulance with John and we had our equipment and they were assessing the guy, whatever. And we just kind of had that look. We looked at each other and we looked at the guy and we're like, something's wrong with this dude. Like, I, I don't know what it is yet, but he doesn't look great. And, and all the signs are just pointed at that. And he, he didn't have like that horribly ill look about him like he wasn't like agonally breathing or something like fixing to die right then but we were both like i don't know what the deal is yet but this guy's sick right it's a spidey sense bro it, it it's is a spidey, it's a sense. spidey sense you get it, it you it, can't put your finger on it but you're like oh man and, oh man absolutely right and and like i said there's nothing outward to be like this guy is is fixing to die or something right so so the backstory is that we talked to him a little bit and he's he's conscious alert he's talking to us and and we're like all right man what happened well it turns out he's a contractor and he was driving to a job site it was right around noontime and he's like, I was, I was just headed out there and I started to not feel so good. And I pulled over the side of the road and I just eaten lunch and I just threw up my lunch. And I'm like, I don't know what happened, but something in me is like, I, I just don't feel good. So I called the ambulance. We're like, all right, perfect. So he's sitting there. He had like a collapsible lawn chair in the back of his truck or something. And he uh, he unfolded this chair and he just hung out. And he was just literally just sitting there sipping water, hanging out for the ambulance when we got there, just next to this big old diesel truck, just idling in the background, right? 
And so we're doing our thing and the, the latter company is getting some vital signs and they're doing a general assessment, whatever. And, and John and I are like, all right, like, let's do our assessment. Let's get a quick 12 lead on this guy. Cause he didn't look terrible. Like he wasn't Ashen or gray or anything, but he also didn't look great. He was a little bit sweaty, you know, maybe not feeling good. He didn't have a ton of medical history, nothing crazy. So put the stickers on him, acquire the 12 lead. We were at an AEMT level at that point. Um, and the immediately the 12 lead comes back as a STEMI, right? It's like abnormal EKG meets infarct criteria, whatever. And so we kind of give each other a look like, okay, like this could be something, right? And we grab the stretcher and we're ushering this guy towards the ambulance. And at that point, we initiate a call for a paramedic who is coming from just a mile down the road, right? So we get back, we get in the truck, we get him laid back, relaxed. We're doing all these vitals again, making sure things are good. And we just run another 12 lead. And sure enough, even with him sitting still, like a lot less artifact, it doesn't, it looks a lot better, but it's still showing the STEMI. So meanwhile, the paramedic's just getting into the truck and, uh, I'm like, you guys got it from here. We get an IV before we start moving. And I'm like, yep, you're good to go, right? So we're in the back. And I actually ended up driving on this call. And, and that's how, that's probably the impression that's made on me. It's like it was such a, it ended up being such a cool call and a big deal that I was like literally just driving. And I say just driving, but um, they ended up in the back. My partner and this paramedic, who's a seasoned paramedic, great guy all around. They, they initiate some treatments on this guy. And in the course of the literal 1.7 miles from where we were to the hospital, this guy starts to really, really decline. And so it turns out he was having a huge heart attack, huge MI. Um, and, and by the time we got within a half a mile of the hospital, the guy was completely unresponsive. My partner was trying to oscillate a manual blood pressure because the auto blood pressure on the monitor had stopped going for whatever reason. And he's looking at the guy and he's kind of got his eyes closed. It's a tough listen for the blood pressure. And he looks at the paramedic and he's like, man, like, I can't get a blood pressure on this guy. And they, you know, the paramedic is looking at the patient and he kind of just slaps my partner on the arm and he's like, points at the monitor. Well, the dude's in VTAC, completely unresponsive, right? Like he's gone into cardiac arrest. They feel for a pulse. He's got no pulse. They initiate CPR right in the back of the truck. So now the paramedic's doing paramedic stuff and I'm pulling into the hospital and they're like, hey, hospital heads up. This guy's a cardiac arrest. Well, Right in the back, like in the ambulance space, some of the techs are coming out, some of the nurses are coming out, give a hand, and they ended up doing CPR for a second on this guy. He had a shockable rhythm, initiated a manual defibrillation from the paramedic, and by the time he was wheeling into the ER, he was back awake, and he was like, oh my God, what happened, right? And it was really cool because some of the nurses are like, okay, like those guys, you got, you guys made a difference on that guy. Like he's having a huge heart attack. If you hadn't been there when you were there, recognized that and done that course of treatment, he'd be dead on the side of the road. Like if he was in another town of Vermont, he likely would have been. And you know, I can put myself in the shoes of Hardwick. Like we're just due to the response district. Like if we were sitting in the ambulance, when a call came in, it could still be 20 minutes until we got there. And this guy was at the hospital within 20 minutes of the 911 call. So it's just like, the perfect lineup, the stars aligned where he called where he was and we got him to the hospital and made a huge difference. And the nurses and doctors kind of patting us on the back being like, you guys legitimately saved his life. Like he would not be alive right now if not for you. And that was like, that's a really cool feel good call. Like I still have one of the strips from the 12 lead in my locker and just when I'm having a really tough day and I'm like, man, like I feel like we don't do anything at this job, blah, blah, blah. I'll look at it and be like, okay, but like if this contractor hadn't called, if we hadn't been there, like he wouldn't be talking to us today. So that was pretty cool. And I never got follow up. Like he never stopped by the fire station with flowers or chocolates or anything like that. But like he was dead in the back of the ambulance and he was alive at the hospital. So it's like we made a difference. That was pretty cool. So that's just one that I always can look back on and be like, nice, you did a good job. That's a great one. And I think you made a really good point about calling for that paramedic early. There's definitely been some times in my career, both as an EMT and an A or even a paramedic where I kind of take a look at somebody and I may not be able to put my finger on what's wrong, but you can kind of get to the point where like, you know what? 
why don't you call a paramedic? Because like something is wrong with him. Like, I don't know, or her, I, I don't know what's going on, but something is up. Like something is not right, you know? And I remember one time I did that, it was a aortic dissection and yeah. like, they looked terrible, but their 12 lead was okay. All this other stuff was okay. The blood pressure was okay. I'm like, ah, I really feel like, then they're like, oh, is this tearing pain in my back normal? I was like, uh, well, no, it is not. Right. And we will get you directly to the emergency department to get that resolved. And like you said, that's that spidey sense where you're like, man, like I know there's something going on. I can't find it in the vital signs, but this guy looks like 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 terrible and I don't know what's going on with it. And you and I have had these conversations a couple of times where maybe it's just stuff that we can't identify in the field, but we're like, for whatever reason, this guy is not doing great. Everything we can look at immediately says he's doing fine, but we got to get him to the hospital. And sure enough, it's something that they can detect that we aren't able to in the field. And they're like, yep, you did the right thing. You got him here. That's what he needed, right? So sometimes we have to talk those people into it, right? There are some people that we can look at. We're like, listen, dude, like honestly, what we can check in the field, like your vital signs look fine and this and that and the other thing. But looking at you, when we walked in the door, I'm like, you're sick. So let's go to the hospital. And sometimes they're a little, you know, disagreeable to that. You talk them into it and then you get there and they're having, you know, like a huge end stemmy or something like that. And you couldn't diagnose it in the field for whatever reason, but you got them to the hospital, you know, maybe against what they had initially hoped for. Like they were hoping you just show up, check them out and say, nope, you're good to go. But you end up making a difference, right? So there's definitely that weird sixth sense. And sometimes you can put your finger on it. Sometimes you can't, but it, it's a thing. I know. I know you've seen me before too. There's been times where we'll bring someone to the hospital and, you know, you and I will go down the algorithm and do every single possible diagnostic or intervention that is indicated that we can think of and we can't find anything. And we'll get in there with the doctor or the nursing staff or whoever it is. And I remember specifically telling them, you know, like something bad is happening. I don't know what it is. Like I, I did everything I could think of to try to figure out what it is, but I'm telling you right now, something bad is happening. And usually the doctors are like, Oh, and then they pull a, you know, they pull the blood labs and they're like, well, yeah, he has a catastrophic potassium. And it's like, and that, those are things that we're not going to be able to tell, you know, in the pre-hospital system. And that's why it's always a good idea to trust your instincts. You know, if you feel like that spidey sense is tingling and they have that thousand yards there, or you see something, somebody's declining and you don't feel very good about it, always advocate to bring them to the hospital because they can do a lot more robust interventions with, you know, ultrasound and IR and, you know, all kinds of CAT scans, CT, MRI, all the, you know, alphabet soup that they can do to try to figure out what's going on with this person. Right. And the cool thing with, I guess, in our system is, so Nick and I, we are in the city that the hospital is in. We only transport to one facility and we know a fair amount of the nurses and docs from, you know, either working there or outside life or whatever. So like if Nick and I roll in with somebody and we're like, listen, this dude's vitals or this lady's vitals are solid, but there's something going on. Like that holds a little bit of weight with the doctors where somebody they maybe not don't know from an outside service or whatever. But if Nick Carson comes in, he's like, man, doc, like I can't put my finger on it, but we rolled up and I think this guy is sick. Like they're probably going to have that same spidey sense. Like that triggers something in the back of their head where they're going to be like, all right, I got to check this person out. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, but if they're saying something's wrong with them, I'm going to believe them. So we, we have a pretty good reputation for that. Yeah. And like I talked about in the airway podcast, some of the things that gear me towards someone being more sick are not the most complex, you know, uh, quantitative assessment pieces. Some of it is like if I put an oral airway in someone and they don't respond at all to me, like if you don't have any airway reflexes, I'm going to consider you pretty sick until that stuff gets taken care of. And it could be just, you know, somebody who's intoxicated with alcohol it could be somebody that's overdosed on medicine. And maybe those aren't the most complicated pieces when it comes to medical care. However, it makes everything else complicated, you know, complicated because then if they vomit, you know, you got an aspiration risk. Now you got to manage airway, all of these other things, you know, sim simple things like that to me are going to be a cue for, you know, or, you know, somebody looks like they just got out of the pool if they're sitting on their couch. Like to me, that's a huge cue that something's wrong. 
Right. And I think even on the opposite end of the spectrum, like you and I have been on calls where initially it doesn't sound like anything huge went on. Like I can think of a great example. It ended up being a pediatric medication overdose. And we were hanging out, like we the, the girl was able to walk out to the ambulance. She's answering all of our questions, like, okay, we'll get you evaluated. And Nick and I are sitting in the back of the ambulance. I'm about to call the hospital. Like he's on the phone with poison control, like just checking in on what what she ended up taking. And the monitor cycles of uh, automatic blood pressure. And it said like 60 something systolic. And I'm like, Oh boy, that does look good. So I'm like, whatever, it's the monitor. Like, I'll take a manual. Like, no big deal. And at this point, this girl really didn't have a ton of indication that she was super sick. Like, she looked kind of pale, but nothing crazy. And then I I get the manual blood pressure. And sure enough, I can't hear anything above like 58. And I'm like, oh, Nick. And I just give him a look across the ambulance. And he's like, oh boy, like, it's time to go. Right. So, and being able to adapt and being like, all right, this person, maybe your field impression isn't they're super sick, but then you check something out. And I mean, you're like, okay, like field impression, whatever, but this person is sick. And we ended up doing a bunch of stuff and helping her too. So it's like, you have to be able to go in both directions and, and you don't want to get lazy and you, cause you can't really turn that off. Um, but you really want to be able to be prepared and kind of adapt in those situations in both directions. Like, okay, you think they're super sick and maybe they're not, or you think they're not sick and then they turn out to be like, like that's on you. You got to be able to make those judgment calls and not get lazy. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, I remember those, those are the calls where, you know, you'll be like, Hey Nick. And you'll like say something and be like, excuse me, what? They right. did what? Right. And you're half asleep in the front of the ambulance getting ready to drive to the hospital because it's 3M or something. And I'll just poke you on the shoulder and point at them on. And you're like, Oh boy, like we got to do some medicine now. And you can turn it on just like that. Right. And that's this is huge. a go-go. This it's is a go-go. go-go. And they can come go-go calls just like that. Yeah. Like, like I can only imagine the situations you've been in, even just as a paramedic, um, where somebody's maybe like in the back and you're driving to the hospital, like everything looked good on scene and all of a sudden somebody taps on the glass and they're like, Nick, like the person is unresponsive and you're like, oh, oh here we go. Yeah. Like game usually on, the, right? Usually the cue is if I'm driving back before we had the cab sealed off, you know, if I'm driving and you're like, sir, 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 sir. And I'm like, right. okay. Oh, and boy. I just throw those red lights on, right. pull over. Like that's usually a good cue that something bad is happening. Definitely. Right. If we get to the point where they're saying, Hey, Hey Nick, like this person's not talking to me anymore. That might be bad, but you're absolutely right. Where they're shaking the person in the back of the ambulance and they're no longer responsive to anything. You're like, uh Oh yeah. Sir, can you open your eyes, sir? And you're like, Oh no. Oh no. Something so, bad happened. Yeah, but that's right. We take care of them. That's right. We know what to do. Well, anyway, Eric, we want to thank you for joining us today. Hopefully we'll have you back on another show. Um, yeah, hopefully um, you guys picked up something from this. I, I don't want to slip into the realm of just telling war stories all the time, but I do think some of this stuff is valuable because it's easy to get caught up in the world and all the negative stuff that's happening right now. And just know that for all those negative calls that are going to bother you, there are definitely going to be positive calls that you're going to carry with you for your whole career. And I feel confident that, you know, 20 years from now, I can look back on some of these incidents and you know remember man like that person got better and they appreciated it and i had the time to put in the training and put myself in a position to affect someone else's life for the better and that's a really special privilege that you get when you work in fire and ems and you may not recognize it at the time right that's just the job at that point but like you said you may not even realize it until that guy comes back with a fruit basket was like i was about to die and now i'm not right here i am talking to you so that might have been the moment you're like oh wow like I made a difference. That's cool. That's the ultimate medals fruit basket. Yeah, that's huge. Right, for sure. All right, Eric. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it a lot.